0: Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, this is Everything Co-op. We welcome this morning. You know, the National Cooperative Business Association, CLUSA, has been in around for 100 years. They got started in March of 1916, and we're celebrating this anniversary, this 100 years, with them uh, on the show. And this month, um, we've been talking about how co-ops last a long time. They just last and last and last. And to talk about that this morning, we have the winner, one of the inductees of the Hall of Fame on the line with us this morning, Mr. Dennis Johnson. Well, you know, he's not here yet, but we'll keep talking until he comes on. He was inducted uh, in the Hall of Fame this year. He has a tremendous background that I'm hoping that whatever is going on, he will be able to to get on. But he has been in banking for 25 years, and then he has been helping to create and get people to understand a senior housing co-op and the benefits of senior housing co-ops. And he's been doing that 10 or 15 years. So he has a wealth of knowledge, grew up on a farm where he learned about co-ops, where a lot of us didn't have that experience. At least I know I did, and I told him I'm a little bit envious of he and people like him that a lot of them in the Midwest, they grew up on farms. And in farming communities, you know, they would come together and pool their resources. And this is what made co op so so wonderful is that the farmers have a lot of risk. When you have a small farm, even a large farm, you have to go out and buy seed and fertilizer. And you have to have knowledge of how to plant these seeds, how to till the soil and And make rolls and make sure that the weeds are not there. And then you have to make sure the bugs and the rabbits and the deers and so forth don't eat your crop. So they have all of these things they have to do on the front end. Then they have to grow it. And then they have to harvest and then sell it. So they have a lot to do. And like all of this rain, it seems like it might be good because it's raining, but if they get too much rain, it's bad, and if they don't get enough rain, it's bad. So they also have the risk of the environment and the weather and so forth. So farming is very, very risky business and very, very hard business in that a lot of farmers know how to do everything. They know how to do everything we just talked about, plus they know how to fix their plows, and if they were horses or mews, they know how to take care of the livestock, And um, they'd have to fix barns and fence and so forth. So they had to have a lot of skill sets in order to farm and a very risky business. So to take some of that risk out of the business, they would pool their resources and they would create co-ops on the front end. And they would call purchasing co-ops and they would get people. They would hire people to do the purchasing for them. So they would have the knowledge about how to do this, this farming business. And that's on the front end, and then they would grow their or produce their cattle or whatever they are farming. And then on the rear end of it, they would create marketing co-ops that they would come together and they would market their products together. They would perhaps hire some people that would understand the different markets, the different pricing. They would understand the different particular vendors or customers that would buy the products from them. And if you're a small farmer, you have more access to different markets that you could not do by yourself. So they would create these farming co-ops and in a marketing co-ops. So these marketing co-ops then said, hey, and this is what I'm hoping Dennis Johnson can come on and talk to us about. They came when they were having difficulty in farming. Somebody in the group said, look, why don't we figure out how to add value to what we produce? How do we add value and therefore perhaps we can get a bigger margin, a bigger profit by adding value? whether that is making coleslaw out of cabbage or creating a creamery where we would take the milk that the milk farmers would produce and they would make cheese or other products and then sell the cheese as opposed to just selling the milk or the cream. So they started talking about this add value. And if we can get Dennis on, I'm hoping he will come on because I really like to have this conversation with him. So, this is what we were talking about with with farming, the different types of co-ops. One is a purchasing co-op on the front end, and we found farmers do that. Also, artists do that. Different artists can come together, and if you're a small artist, you may not be able to afford a studio, uh, particular to buy something where you can produce whatever it is that you are producing. So you get artists that come together, and they create a co-op so they can build their resources together. They have more income, more perhaps capital. If you get 5, 10, 15 farmers together or artists together and pool their resources, they can also pool their talents. Maybe everybody can't do everything, but you have, maybe you have somebody that can write the checks and somebody that can pay the bills and somebody do the purchasing. So they can pool their resources and, who the task of who would do what in these, if you will, purchasing co-ops on the front end. And then on the back end, if you have artists, and it could be all painters or sculptures or could be a mixture, pottery. And you get these people together and they say, look, we, we're going to have an open house. We're going to have a showing on a certain date and everybody comes together. And now you have people to help them to market whatever it is that they have produced. They get people to come in to look at what they're doing and then perhaps buy what it is that these individual artists have created or these individual farmers have produced. So you end up getting access to different markets or different people that can buy your products. And therefore, when you're selling, you may be able to get it at a higher price. So you can make some money or in some cases, in these starving artists, you may be able to sell it period where you couldn't sell it um, for almost anything. When you're trying to do everything by yourself, this is what makes cooperation such a wonderful, wonderful idea. And then if you do this cooperation within the principles and values of cooperatives, that's why this longevity happens. It, It sort of, You don't get the failures that you get in the normal sort of an entrepreneur starting something by themselves, trying to create the capital and get everything going. So there's much more failure with the normal entrepreneur getting started, this capitalistic model, as opposed to cooperative model. It takes longer to get them started normally because there's some training that must happen. You get people that coming together. They must learn how to run a business. They must learn how to work together. And I've said this a number of times on this program. You know, if you start, if you get two or more people together, you're going to have some disagreements. you got to know it from, from day one. If you get two people together trying to do something together, you're going to end up with people perhaps arguing or perhaps fighting or perhaps at least nothing else disagreeing. so within this disagreement you have to be able to resolve the conflicts and that's training that's that's all it takes training to get this resolution to happen it just doesn't happen by itself because most cases we don't learn how to do that as we're growing up some people do some schools will have conflict resolution but normally a lot of times we don't so in the co-op that's what happens. You end up learning how to reserve, resolve conflict, pool money together, and make good choices together. It's phenomenal and it really, really works. We're going to take our first break to get the weather, the news, and the traffic, and we'll be right back. Thank you. <music> Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oakes. You know, I just called Dennis Johnson, and so we'll get him one to hear his story. Remember, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, which is the highest honor that somebody can get. It's our heroes, our cooperative heroes. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning. How are you this morning? Well, I'm embarrassed. Don't be. It works. It happens. <laughs> Stuff happens. <laughs> I
1: wrote this down, and uh, and Pat and I talked about the uh, time zone differences, and I still wrote it down for Eastern time instead of Central time. My apologies.
0: Well, it's probably the opposite. We are on Eastern time, and you probably put it in Central because you're in where are you in Ohio. Uh, no, I'm in Minnesota. Oh, in Minnesota. Okay, so you're on Central time. Okay, right. Yeah, that's probably yeah. Yeah, so you were going to call in an hour from now, or half an that's hour from correct. now. That's correct. Well, I'm glad you were able to make it. I'm glad I had your number to call you. Oh. So what I talked about the first 15 minutes was um, your 25 years on the farm, I mean in the in the banking, and then 10 to 15 in senior citizen housing. And I talked to them about the difference between a purchasing co-op and a marketing co-op. So that's okay. where we are right now. So All right. Talk to us about some of the things. You, you have a long – oh, I also told them that I uh, envy guys like you that started when you were young. So how did you get in? Let's start with where you, what you did and how you got started in the co-ops.
1: I grew up with them. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised on a, a small uh, family farm in east-central Minnesota. And uh, we had a, uh, had a co-op uh, uh, petroleum uh, uh, outfit we worked with, a co-op feed mill, co-op creamery, a co-op grocery store. Co-op Locker Plant, Co-op Telephone, uh, Co-op Electric uh, Real electric Cooperative, uh, Co-op Credit Union. Everything we did was uh, through the uh, cooperatives. And my grandfather served on uh, several boards of directors. And uh, when I was uh, young, there were several of those uh, annual meetings that I went along with him to uh, sit and observe and, uh, and uh, watch what was going on. So it, it was basically ingrained in my life. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I was actually more interested in in moving away from co-ops and agriculture and going into teaching. But after a year in college, uh, I went back to the uh, ag and co-op side and uh, transferred to the University of Minnesota and uh, got a degree in Agricultural
0: Business Administration. Agricultural Business Administration.
1: Correct. That was a degree that was offered at, uh, at the University of Minnesota at the time through the ag econ department, and it was focused on individuals who would uh, move into uh, management positions within agricultural businesses, whether it was cooperative or privately held or, or public or whatever. But did you talk and about the
0: co-op model in that program?
1: Uh, we did. At that time, the uh, university had uh, two different mandatory uh, uh, classes on cooperatives, uh, one on dairy cooperatives and one on cooperatives in uh, general. That was part of the, uh, the requirements for the degree.
0: And what year Probably did you I get that. your degree?
1: I got my uh, bachelor's degree at the University of Minnesota in 1971, and I stayed on for a master's degree in agricultural economics. I got that in 1973. And that's when I uh, when I graduated. That's when I ended up working going to work for the uh, St. Paul Bank for cooperatives. As a uh, initially as a loan officer and spent 25
0: years there. St. St. Paul Bank for Cooperatives. Correct. Okay. Now, the reason I asked you the year, because I graduated from college in 1970, so we were right around the same age, it turns out. Mm-hmm. And nowhere <laughs> I got a the undergrad degree, and then I got a master's in math from Penn State, and then an MBA from Stanford in seventy six. Nowhere that I know anything about co-ops. And here you got two mandatory classes. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, this was Minnesota, remember. I mean, <laughs> we were the state with the largest number of cooperatives, and it was a strong dairy state back at that point in time. And as, uh, as part of a degree in uh, ag business, yeah, you had to take the courses in cooperatives.
0: Oh, boy. So I would like for you to put those different co-ops in, in this framework. A, a co-op can be any business. It could be uh, if the employees own and control it, it's a worker cooperative. And if the consumers, the people that buy or sell their products, own and control it, it's a consumer cooperative. And then we talked about the purchasing and the marketing co-ops. So you mentioned you had a grocery store. Was that a worker co-op or a consumer co-op? That was basically
1: a consumer co-op. It's much like the uh, uh, co-op food stores uh, we have around today. Uh, it was in the uh, community. It was uh, owned by the uh, members who used it, and uh, we used to go in there uh, once a week or once every two weeks and buy all our groceries, and, uh, uh, you know, we, I mean, we paid regular prices for it, but at the end of the year when everything was all said and done and tallied up the books and if there was uh, more revenue than expenses, uh, we ended up with a patronage refund. I don't recall that there was ever any assessments uh, back in
0: those days, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a typical food comp as you I have today. So the patronage mm-hmm. refund, or an assessment, if 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 it was in the red and negative, then you, people would have to pay in something.
1: It, it the- could be
0: if they didn't have enough
1: cash to keep it uh, to uh, keep it going, or if they were assuming or uh, recognizing that the coming year wasn't going to generate enough cash. Yeah, you might have to make a, a special
0: uh, a payment into the co-op to cover the loss. Yeah, and then the housing co-op world, which is another consumer uh, cooperative. Uh, that's called a special assessment. That's right. Okay. Yes. Yep. That's, right. Th- that's how I learned about co-ops was by managing them. I'm a property manager. I manage uh, co-ops, apartments, and condos, and I learned about co-ops, and I've liked that model a lot. Uh, I think i say I love it, um, but that gets to what is called the third principle, which is member economic participation. You put some money in, and if there's a surplus or profit, however you want to call it, then you, the members decide how that would be divvied up, and that could be Correct. a patronage or a dividend or whatever it's called. Correct. Yep. Okay. That's the grocery. What about the telephone? What type of co-op was that?
1: You know, the telephone was basically a, a break-even operation. It was a, a rural setup, we had 22 members on the line. And our this was the old crank telephones, and our ring was two shorts and a long. And my uh, dad and my uncle were the linemen who uh, took care of it. And they, uh, uh, they'd, uh, you know, if there was a storm, every time there was a storm, we'd be go out looking for broken insulators or, or branches or whatever. And uh, basically they kept track of their time and kept track of their expenses. And at the end of the year, the members all got together and reviewed that and and uh, put up the money to cover the expenses for the year, and uh, they moved on to the next one. The, uh, the direct, I mean, the uh, calls themselves actually went through... Uh, uh, Northwestern Bell at that time, but uh, this was a telephone company that maintained the lines in this uh, in
0: the uh, in this little uh, rural community. <laughs> you know, I remember we got our first telephone. I don't think it was a rural, but but it was a, a what did they call it? A, a public line, and then oh, everybody sure. could hear what everybody else. Well, at least a four or five. Six, I don't know how many people were on that public line. But if somebody, and I don't, we did not have a special ring, so when it rang, everybody would pick it up and figure out who it was for. Okay. <laughs>
1: well, as I recall, the, these 22 families, there was like uh, five or six families on each kind of line. But it was, uh, so you would, I mean, if you picked up the phone, any one of those other uh, five or six could be talking. You would have to wait till they get done. Or in some cases, you just put your hand over the receiver and listen. You know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> All right, so electric co-op, rural electric co-op. What kind was it? Consumer or worker?
1: Well, that would be consumer. It was uh, East Central Electric Association, uh, created under the Rural Electrification Act of, uh, back in the uh, 30s. My grandfather was uh, one of those who went around and uh, and uh, helped solicit um uh, uh, payments to uh, get the equity going, to get the organization going and uh, run the lines and provide us with the electricity we needed on the farms. So that was really
0: a a consumer co-op. Now, you know, most people don't know about co-ops, but there's one right here in Southern Maryland in Prince George's County or Charles County, Maryland. It's called Southern Maryland Electric Co-op and S M E C O I think or its an initial, and they call it Mico. Mm-hmm. Um so there's a, there's one right here close by and when I've had somebody on uh, Martin Lowry from the uh, rural Electric Cooperative Association, he uh and talked about there's one in Virginia, northern Virginia, I think in Fairfax county and so what's happened with the rural electrics around here that you know d c moves out and moves out and you get in the suburbs, so they're no longer rural there um but you still have these rural electrics that was working, I also found out that seventy five or eighty percent of the land of the lines. Are owned by Rural Electrics, right? Which I found very, very
1: interesting. Well, uh, you know it is, but if you think about it, the Rural Electrics serve the rural areas, you know, where you've got the long distances to go with the uh, transmission lines and the uh, the electric lines, and that was one of the reasons that uh, the uh, REA Act was created was because the for-profit entities didn't want to spend the money to uh, do that because they couldn't get enough uh, sales on the other end to uh, cover their costs. And so that's why the r a came about, and we have the same thing here in minneapolis st paul on the uh, on the outer suburbs they are still served by real electric cooperatives, but i mean their their territories now are almost uh urban uh, uh, oh yeah all urban exactly yep.
0: but it also gets to the point uh early on in the program, a gentleman from Senegal said it was that the co ops are found to solve a community need. So the community need back then was for elect- for the telephone or electricity or groceries or gasoline. So whatever it is that there's a need, you can get people together to solve that need. Um, and exactly. His name was Papa C. and matter of fact, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame maybe three years ago. Oh, and, yeah. And so he was on the program. He said, you know, if there's no community need, there's no need for a co-op, which was his second piece. I thought that was fascinating. That's
1: right. And, and I mean, with that, I mean, there can be a community need that, that supports the uh, uh, organization and origination of a co-op, but it's possible that over time that community need uh, 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 dissolves and there's no need for a cooperative later on as well. And I think that's one of the challenges that uh, that some of us have with cooperatives is we believe that once created, they ought to be there forever. But the reality is is that, in some cases, they serve a, a useful life that is you know a few years, maybe five, ten, fifteen, twenty, and uh, it's time to move on to something else.
0: that's interesting. We haven't had that conversation come up very often on the program, but I guess if if, if there is a need, a community need, and there's a need for a co-op, once that need goes away, you don't need a co-op so but, okay, yeah. I, I get yep. that I get that mm-hmm. okay then you had a you were in a credit union, worker or yeah, consumer. We-
1: uh, well, that's consumer. Uh, yeah, there is a, a local credit union that was started in that area. It was actually started by uh, several of the uh, the uh, cooperatives. We had a farm supply cooperative and a dairy cooperative uh, and the, uh, a food cooperative all got together. And if you belong to any one of those organizations, you could also be a member of the credit union.
0: Okay, we're going to have to take our second break, and we'll, we'll be right back. That's cooperation among cooperatives. Thank you, Dennis, for coming on. We'll be right back. All right. WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is everything cooperative, and we have Mr. Dennis Johnson on the line with us this morning. We're talking about we were talking about the different types of co-ops, but the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. And NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for Americans' cooperatives and their members placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And, Dennis, before we uh, got on break, you said that you had worked for the St. Paul Bank for Cooperatives. And did you all have a mission of helping communities that were economically challenged?
1: Uh, we did. The, uh, the Bank for Cooperative system was created in uh, 1933 as part of the uh, uh, Agricultural Act and part of the uh, National Farm Credit System. And uh, there were 12 banks, originally 13, 12 banks and one participation bank charged with uh, financing and working with uh, farmers and rural communities on uh, on cooperatives and cooperative services to meet their needs. And so our mission was to, uh, we had the uh, charter in the four states of North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And our charter was to work with uh, agricultural cooperatives on uh, whether it was marketing or uh, farm supply. Uh, or dairy, uh, whatever it might be, on helping, uh, in some cases, organize them, but in most cases, providing the financing, financial advice, financial counseling that they might need. And uh, that's where I went to work in 73 when I uh, graduated from college, started with the bank. We had the four-state charter. We were about maybe $400 million at that time, uh, but then we uh, consistently grew. Traditionally uh, served, as I said, farm supply, grain marketing cooperatives, but uh, we also were involved in uh, in uh, financing the uh, sugar beet cooperatives here in the upper Midwest, American Crystal Sugar. American Crystal is the brand name that you may see in your grocery stores. That's a cooperative owned by the uh, sugar beet growers. And then we also got into uh, providing financing for rural electric and rural telephone cooperatives.
0: Hmm. Now, how do you do this? Because I've I've had Chuck Snyder, who's the president of NCB, uh, he's been on the program a couple of times, Because when I was – I told you at Stanford, an MBA program, I thought I might want to be a banker. It seemed like bankers knew how to manage money, or they seemed like some of it seemed to stick to them. They had a better way of doing that. So uh, going, I wanted to to figure out how to accumulate wealth. But most banks that I learned, when they loan money, they're only concerned about three things, uh, getting their money back, getting their money back, and getting their money back. So – they normally will loan money to people that already have assets they want somebody to have capital so that if they don't make their loan they can go back and reach and get something so they get their money back and that's what they're look how do you do this in economically challenged communities because most in economically challenged communities means that folks don't have a lot of collateral uh, particularly in black and brown communities people don't have wealth they haven't created wealth for a whole bunch of reasons but at any rate how do you Get to where you loan money out to people that no, don't necessarily have the clatter to go get.
1: Well, you know the the market we had here in the upper Midwest. Uh, it, you know it was it was rural. It was a rural market. It was an agricultural market. And in almost all cases, the producers or the farmers had some money to put up to get the uh, cooperative going. What they needed was additional or a supplemental financing. And Back in those days, uh, well, even today in many respects, uh, cooperatives are not well understood by traditional lenders, Uh, plus lending limits uh, were an issue as well because some of these cooperatives needed large sums of uh, particularly seasonal financing for financing grain inventories or or fertilizer inventories, and other commercial lenders didn't have the capacity to do that. What we did is we had a very strong servicing approach uh, in our lending. Uh, First of all, we had a limited market. It was only the cooperatives in these four states that we could serve. So we had an interest in either helping them survive or helping them survive as part of a larger unit that would continue operating and uh, and continue uh, uh, borrowing money, if you will. And uh, um, so we did did a lot of servicing. Our loan officers, uh, when I started as a loan officer, we used to meet with the uh, cooperative uh, boards uh, at least once, in many cases, uh, two or three times a year. Uh, we would work them, on, work with them on budgeting out their financial needs, so we could identify uh, how much financing they needed. Particularly in uh, grain cooperatives, where commodity prices were so volatile, and uh, in uh, in uh, in June you may not need any borrowed money, but when uh, uh, October comes around, you may need a million, million and a half dollars. And so we worked with them pretty diligently on that. Some of them got into trouble. And what we did was then work with uh, them and uh, neighboring organizations to identify a way to uh, combine and to put them together. Uh, we charged uh, obviously competitive rates, uh, sometimes probably even a little higher than the market, but we were able to provide the service, uh, able to provide the uh, capacity, and uh, and it was uh, the interest was paid. What that meant in most cases is we had profitable years, and at the end of the year we'd have uh, a patronage refund to uh, pay back to the members. Wait a minute! Anyway. You
0: you were a bank that gave money back?
1: Correct. We were a cooperative. <laughs> we were a cooperative. That's right. <laughs> we were owned by the cooperatives that uh, served us. They had to buy a hundred dollar share of stock to become a member, and then uh, uh, depending on uh, how much um, um, uh, money they or, uh, how much they borrowed and their interest charges, they'd also have to buy some additional stock. And uh, at the end of the year, we allocated all of our earnings back to the members based on patronage. And, paid 20% of that
0: in cash, and retained the rest of it. Wow. A bank that gives money back to its members. (laughs) I don't know about anybody else out there listening, but that sounds real strange to me that that in in my 68 years in whatever banking I've had, um, that just doesn't happen. So, okay, got it. You're a co-op bank, though. That's correct. That's what's different. And most people don't understand co-ops. That's why NCB is sponsoring this program, to get people to understand the... Um, benefits of cooperative, working cooperatively. So you talked about a creamery when you were young growing up over the creamery. And also when we talked before, you said at the bank you started working with value added. Is that what you call that? Were you Correct. Yep. Okay. Can you tell us some of the things you did there and why?
1: Well, you know, the uh, creamery idea obviously came around back in the uh, 20s when farmers had to uh, sell their milk or cream and what to do with it. And uh, when I was growing up, we had a creamery about uh, half a mile from the farm that we delivered our milk to. But as uh, times changed, eventually that uh, creamery wasn't getting enough milk. And this is an example of the consolidation part of it. And a few years later, it merged with the creamery about five miles away. But the concept of that is that the farmers could sell their milk. The creamery would buy it. They'd process it into uh, cheese or uh, butter or, in some cases, uh, uh, dry milk powder, which was used for feed. And that would add value to that milk rather than just selling it as whole milk or a gallon of milk. It was a processed uh, product which had added value. That same thing came about in the uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s after the agricultural crisis when farmers were growing uh, corn or soybeans or, uh, or wheat, whatever it might be, and selling it basically as uh, commodities. The for-profit companies were buying those products and then processing them into, into uh, edible products or into feed products or whatever it might be. And so we had a number of different groups and uh, started in uh, in uh, western Minnesota and in North Dakota looking at uh, creating uh, ethanol cooperatives where the farmers would uh, make an investment into the uh, cooperative, they'd build the facility. Uh, and the, uh, farmers would be obligated to deliver so many bushels of, uh, corn or whatever, uh, each month or each year as part of their commitment to, uh, making the cooperative work. We ended up providing, uh, long-term financing to finance the construction of the facilities as well as, uh, operating capital financing to, uh, finance, you know, their purchasing needs and so forth. We had about three or four, uh, ethanol plants that we financed in, uh, in Minnesota, uh, Dakota Grower's Pasta Plant in uh, Castleton, North Dakota. We financed that as a way for the wheat farmers to uh, sell their wheat and have it processed into um, into a pasta. That was actually, uh, they had a brand label, Dakota Grower's Pasta. It was a retail label. And it was sold in the, in grocery stores around here. Kind of built off of the uh, American Crystal and the Sugar Beet Cooperatives that we uh,
0: So there was a way for the farmers to use the products that they created and add value to it to get more profit also.
1: Correct. And and to employ uh, more people in rural areas because Mm. all of these plants needed employees. Uh, All of these plants had uh, trucks or deliveries coming in, trucks or deliveries going out. So there was need for uh, service stations and cafes and uh, some lodging facilities and uh, everything else that went with it. So it it was an economic development opportunity for rural areas as
0: well. So how long did you work for the bank? 25 years. 25 years. So you're working with the bankers, helping businesses by going in and working with them in their budgets and meeting with them one to three times a year. And then you also help them by creating more businesses that they can sell their products to, and have more use for their products and perhaps even make money and hire folks. That sounds wonderful. Let me ask you this question. We only have a minute before our next break, but did you like what you uh, were doing in that 25 years?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Why? You know, I started at the bank in 73. I was a loan officer. I wasn't sure I really wanted to get into finance, but I'd been going to school. My wife had been working and supporting us, and we decided, you know what? You better get a job and start bringing home a paycheck. So we decided to try it and see what would happen. I thought maybe I'd stay there for a year or two and uh, stay there for 25 years, the last
0: 10 as president and CEO. Okay. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about what you did after that and what you've been doing. Um, but we'll take our final break and we'll back for the last 12 minutes or so. Thank you, everybody. Please don't touch that dial. WOL
1: Washington,
0: WPRN. Waldorf HD2 Washington HD2 a radio one station and worldwide at W-O-L-D-C-news.com. Welcome back everybody this is Vernon Oaks on Everything Cooperative we have Mr. Dennis Johnson with us this morning uh, Dennis 25 years with the bank you're doing well you're the president for 10 years why would you leave and what did you do
1: well, actually, what happened is we decided to uh, to merge the bank with a bank in Denver. And uh, uh, my wife and I had the option to uh, move to Denver to stay with the organization. But uh, we decided we didn't want to do that. We wanted to stay in Minnesota. And so uh, uh, we let the bank go and we stayed here.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Seems easy. Yeah. <laughs> what did you decide to do then?
1: Well, actually, initially, I was uh, not going to do much at all. But within six months, I think I was back working for uh, cooperatives in one way or another and uh, started working with the Minnesota Association of Cooperatives. They needed some assistance and uh, were under joint management uh, contract with uh, Rod Stone, who was the executive director of the Wisconsin Federation of Cooperatives. And we had worked together in various projects for a number of years. And so I was doing some consulting projects uh, with them. Uh, and back when I was at the bank in the early '90s, again as part of the uh, response to the agricultural crisis, uh, Rod was chair of the uh, Cooperative Development Foundation, and uh, uh, John Gauchi was the uh, director. And the three of us were talking about issues, and ch- was well, as was Judy Zielanski, who's now the uh, head of NCBA, talking about issues and challenges in rural areas, and uh, one of them was housing. And so we commissioned a feasibility study. Uh, the potential of doing senior housing cooperatives in uh, rural areas, Uh, at which time I met uh, Terry McKinley, uh, who was working for NCB at the time. And uh, the feasibility study suggested that there was a need and a way to do that, so we created uh, Homestead Housing Center, uh, brought in uh, uh, investment capital from uh, uh, Agribank here in uh, St. Paul, uh, from uh, Senex, Great River Energy, uh, Farmland Industries, and a number of different organizations and uh, focused on developing senior housing cooperatives in rural areas. We uh, ultimately developed 17, 351 units in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, and Missouri. But we discovered that it was a process that was uh, very expensive and uh, not too successful. So uh, uh, shortly after uh, uh, 2000, uh, Homestead Housing Center was liquidated what we found was that the way to develop senior housing cooperatives was uh, through for-profit developers. We also had a spurt in the number of uh, senior housing cooperatives at that point in in Minnesota and uh, Iowa, and uh, all of them looking for ways that they could uh, work with each other, talk to each other, network, and uh, share issues and concerns and solutions. And so uh, one of my uh, early assignments, uh, I was hired to uh, create the Senior Cooperative uh, Annual Housing Conference. And we did our first one in uh, 2001. We had about uh, 98 uh, members there. And out of that uh, grew what has become the, um, the uh, co-op sector and cooperative network. Cooperatives were getting together on a quarterly basis to network and discuss and share ideas. We continued promoting the conference, and we just had our 16th conference here uh, two weeks ago. And we had a little over 300 participants in the uh, organization. And it was also shortly after that time that I started working more closely with Terry at Cooperative Housing Resources. Uh, we also created the Senior Cooperative Foundation to promote the successful development and operation of senior housing cooperatives and became Terry's partner in Cooperative Housing Resources, which is a HUD-approved lender. Uh, we specialize in financing uh, strictly for senior housing cooperatives, no other, no other projects, no other market. Uh, Terry retired a few years ago, and my son came in as part owner. So uh, Travis and I now operate the company, and, and we've uh, focused con- <clears throat> focused strictly with uh, senior housing cooperatives. As I mentioned, the conference, uh, we also co-sponsor some uh, quarterly uh, workshops, and in 2010, we created uh, SCH Purchasing Cooperative, and we now have uh, 22 senior housing cooperatives that are members, and uh, use the purchasing cooperative for flooring products and. Appliances and office supplies, TV, telephone, internet, uh, emergency services, and uh, um, dryer vent
0: cleaning, a variety of different products. You have said a mouthful, so I want to break some of this down. <laughs> okay. But let me ask Sorry you before about I that. try to go back. I manage a 16 unit senior co op here in D.C., and I have not known about this to try to see if I'd. I seriously doubt if these seniors would want to travel to Iowa or Minnesota or something to a conference, but they might. And we also might want to join your purchasing cooperative uh, for some of those particular appliances and maybe some other things. So how would we get a hold of you guys?
1: Well, we have uh, two websites. Uh, Seniorcoops.org is our main website. We created that back when we created the foundation that has all of our contact information in there and on that site. Uh, we have some of the uh, services and the uh, products we offer. We also have a listing of all the senior housing cooperatives that we know of. Uh, and a few years ago, we brought together a committee of seniors to develop some educational and marketing information. And we created uh, SeniorCoopLiving.org, uh, which is a website that uh, focuses strictly on what a senior housing cooperative is all about. Uh, and on there, we have a, a 12-minute video that uh, has interviewed members of senior housing cooperatives, what they like. Uh, But um, um, we're we're on those websites, and our contact information is there. Uh, We probably get an average of uh, three or four contacts a week off of those websites from anywhere around the United States. And we even get from uh, other uh, parts of the country, uh, other parts of the world, I should say, Uh, from Europe. We've had a few from uh, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Canada has been very interested uh, in senior housing cooperatives, but uh, we're on the website
0: seniorcoopliving.org. I went on that yesterday, and I looked at your 12-minute video, and it's phenomenal. Getting people to understand co-ops is still a major, major, major concern and issue because, as people in that video said, if they knew that option even existed, they would have done this five or 10 years before they did it, to join this co-op, for all kinds of good reasoning that they talked about. And the one that the senior co-op that I'm working on it, they control the business. They own the the building. They they control it. They make the policy decisions. And as a management, we just implement the policies. As, as an example, this was created by MANA. That's a nonprofit developer here in uh, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And MANA developed it 15 years ago. And right now, uh, one bedroom runs $331, and it's right up above the new convention center. So it used to be in what we call the neighborhood, but it, it's now in prime time, high rent district, and a two-bedroom runs for 420 So for anybody out there that want to call and get it, you, you have to be over 62 years old, and you have to make less than $1,000 thousand or less a month. So it's is is really created for, for affordable living. But, you know, they, they get together, and they, they decide what goes on, and that creates this community where they watch over each other. And and they hold each other accountable. It works. It works really well. That's right. What is your experience, and do you like working in this arena as much as or if not more than in the banking arena? You know,
1: it's at least as much as, and in some cases uh, more than. One of the other programs we developed in the foundation is our Senior Cooperative Housing Education Program. We have education modules in governance and community, uh, financial statements, uh, uh, aging in place, working with a management company. Uh, And in almost all new cooperatives, uh, almost all the cooperatives we work with are uh, financed with a HUD-insured master mortgage. And uh, normally once that uh, final endorsement is made by HUD and the project is turned over to the members, uh, they have 60 days to elect a board of directors. And we're into most of those organizations within that 60-day period to do the education session on governance. And what does it mean to be a member? What are my duties? What are my responsibilities? What are my obligations? Uh, what, What are the obligations and responsibilities of a board? What does a board do? And I told somebody here a while ago that I've never had so much fun doing education programs as I have with this group. We did a lot of training programs when I was at the bank, director training and so forth. And they were, they were good. They were well. I enjoyed it. They were fun. Uh, but this group, you know, these 75, 80, 90-year-old individuals have more questions. They are more interested in what this all means and how it works and the implications. And uh, most of these sessions go around two hours by the time you answer all their questions and uh, and talk through everything. So that part of it is more fun than uh, uh, previously. But, yeah, it's very good. We enjoy it. We like it.
0: Yeah. You know, um, I want to give a shout out to this training group here called housing counseling services. Uh, They came in and did a training for the 16 units. This is again, 15 years ago and they stayed with them the whole year. They came to meetings and the training would happen in the meetings. And I, I still do training in the meetings to make sure that everybody understands the financial statements and the difference between the balance sheet. And we give them a cash flow statement as opposed to an income statement. But, what happens and what this looks like, and also budget time. We still do training because new members have come in. And I've talked to them about having Housing Counseling Service come back and do training for the new members for all the things you talked about. But that's what makes it work, this knowledge, which is the fifth principle, education, training, and information of the cooperative principles, which I like a lot. This was the first thing Perhaps it, this volunteer and open membership was the first thing I like about co-ops. It's open to all persons, regardless of um, gender or, or social status or racial status, or how much how you count, how money you have, political status, religion. It doesn't make any difference. You, It's open to everybody, and that's why I like being African American, growing up in America uh, with racism. That first volunteer and open membership for co-ops is what I like. Democratic member control is the second. Member economic participation we've already talked about autonomy and independence that's why they have to control it. Then education, training, and information is the one I like the most. And the sixth principle is cooperation among cooperatives, which we talked about a little bit. And the seventh one is concern for a community. So these principles is what caused the modern is what the modern cooperative utilizes, and that's why I like them, and I can see why you could get a lot of fun. I've taught for twelve years too, uh, Dennis, so you could get a lot of fun. The, the, the payoff for, te- for teaching for me was when the light came on, and those That's questions. Right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you didn't get paid a lot of money, but you got a lot of gratification when your students, whatever age, when they got the information and then they could go use it. So yeah, I can see how it could be more. So what are you what are you doing now?
1: Uh we're still uh, still working on. Uh, we're still uh, we're uh, originating financing for some new cooperatives here in the Midwest. Uh, we're still promoting the uh, foundation, as you know. We just co-sponsored our conference here uh, a couple weeks ago, and we're starting planning for next year's conference. And we're working on expanding the uh, purchasing cooperative, both in terms of more members and uh, more products and services. We have
0: plenty to do. When you say originating finance, is that for senior co-ops?
1: Yes. Yeah. We only we only work with senior housing cooperatives. Uh, uh, and we originate the financing, and as I said, most of these are under the uh, HUD-insured master mortgage program under Section 213. And uh, we originate, consult with the developers in the initial process, and uh, and help arrange the financing.
0: Well, you know, I'm working with a group in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. They're looking at developing either 52-unit senior housing co-op or 82 units and working with a guy named Hugh Jeffers. Yeah. He used to be with NCB about doing the 213. And what's interesting, we have to come up to the HUD office up in your area because they seem to be the only one that understand this 213 or senior housing co-ops. But I just found out we have to get approval from the New York office also. Correct. The people in Minnesota would do the processing and work and so forth. But um, I think Hugh knows it, but we still may be calling you guys. Uh, The biggest issue is marketing. we got to sell somewhere between 70 and 90% before we even – Start construction. This is a build ground-up Correct.
1: Yep. And that, that is probably one of the major challenges with a, a new housing cooperative is the uh, is the pre-sales. Uh, and I shouldn't say that, excuse me, is the marketing. Because as I like to describe it, you're meeting with uh, individuals that are or couples that are 75, 80, 85 years old. Uh, you're uh, uh, convincing them that they need to uh, downsize. They need to move out of a home they've lived in for 50, 60 years with uh, no monthly payment. And you're talking to them about moving into a new facility that's uh, smaller. It's a multifamily facility. Uh, you have to get along with others. And uh, you're going to take on a monthly payment, which includes your share of the mortgage and monthly expenses. And, oh, by the way, on this little schematic here, maybe you can pick out yours. We'll put a little red dot on it. And you can move in in uh, maybe two years, two and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there, there's a tremendous marketing challenge for senior housing
0: cooperatives. Oh, boy. We've got to close out, Dennis. Any last word?
1: Thank you for uh, inviting me on this. I apologize for uh, being late, but it's been great. And, uh, I enjoyed working it. With cooperatives. If anybody has any questions on senior housing cooperatives, uh, go to seniorcoops.org and uh, shoot us a question.
0: Thank you, Dennis. I will do that. It's been wonderful. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thank you. All right, everybody. Have Take a care. great day, and we'll see you next Thursday.